welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and this episode is focused on national child care and early learning plans with Armin Yalnizian, labor economist and Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Work. She recently served as Senior Economic Policy Advisor to the Deputy Minister of Employment and Social Development Canada. She's worked with the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives in the past for many years, and Armin is now very much focused on the impact of federal financing of the early learning and child care system for children, parents, and teachers. Now, by way of background, our government's recent throne speech said this. It has been nearly 50 years since the Royal Commission on the Status of Women outlined the necessity of childcare services for women's social and economic equality. We have long understood that Canada cannot succeed if half of the population is held back. Canadians need more accessible, affordable, inclusive, and high-quality childcare. Then, in the fall economic statement, as a first step, the government announced early investments to lay the groundwork for a Canada-wide childcare system in partnership with provinces, territories, and Indigenous people, and noted that Budget 2021 will outline a plan to provide affordable, accessible, and high-quality childcare from ocean to ocean to ocean. Now, here in Beaches East York, it's certainly true that many young families face the difficult cost crunch of housing, yes, but also childcare. So more affordable childcare is unquestionably welcome. At the same time, I've had one constituent in particular raise some concerns about the plans, and she's pointed me to some of the challenges that Quebec, for example, has faced. So Armin joins me to help me think through the way forward as we look ahead to Budget 2021 and those investments in early learning and childcare. Armin, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Nate. As a matter of generational fairness, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and I do think young Canadians get squeezed on housing, also on childcare. The premise that we need more affordable childcare is one that speaks to my wife and I. You've written a lot in this area. You've called for more government funding and action. Why should the government prioritize early learning and childcare? Why is early childhood education the way forward for our country? Three reasons. The first reason is the pandemic has triggered the first ever she session. And to be able to get to recovery, we need a she recovery. And the major choke point in she recovery is safe school reopening and childcare capacity. And we are losing both time and um, money on that. And just macroeconomically speaking, we can't get back to quote normal. Even if that's your low bar goal that you want to get to, can't happen unless women can accept the jobs that they are offered because there's a safe place to put their kids. So quality as well as cost is involved here. And we are losing, we are hemorrhaging childcare spaces during the uh, pandemic, childcare capacity during the pandemic. And the second reason is because it's not just about getting mommy back to work. We are heading into decades of the impact of population aging. So the smallest working age cohort in the last 60 years is about to be lifting up for decades the people that are too old, too young, and too sick to work. And they're going to need help. It's the biggest dependency ratio we've seen since the boomers were born. And now the boomers are exiting and our fertility rates have fallen for decades. So the people actually available, made in Canada people that are available to do the work that's left and know the robots aren't going to eat all of the jobs, they are going to be under a lot of stress. And you've raised two of the huge issues. The two biggest ways to chew up your income is housing and childcare if you're a young family with kids, especially preschool-aged kids. We're going to need all hands on deck for the future labor force. Make sure everybody's learning ready when they get into school. 
and learning supported as they go through school. And that means not just public school, but great supports to get kids ready to learn and supported as they are going through school to minimize high school dropouts, to maximize learning potential today, which turns into earning potential tomorrow. And I guess the third reason why childcare is a great thing is preparing for the future. All of these things need to be done in the context of not just affordability and quantity of care, but quality of care. And we haven't put much of a premium on quality of care in the conversation since the 1970s when it comes to childcare. Now, we have seen a renewed focus from the federal government in this conversation, first in the throne speech and then in the fall economic statement, we saw dollars put on the table, specifically for a secretariat, $20 million, $70 million to build some capacity in that secretariat. And then the real large dollar amounts here, $420 million to attract and retain early childhood educators. And the language of the fall economic statement was a down payment towards uh, a stronger federal role in early learning and childcare. You've proposed to the government a way forward on spending. Walk me through the role you see the federal government playing and how much more money the federal government should be spending towards this, this issue. Yeah, don't forget that the fall economic statement also put down a kind of hold this space amount of money in the form of $2.4 billion in the Canada Child Benefit for families with kids under six, which are preschoolers, right? Literally more money in your pocket. Presumably some of that money will help keep open some childcare centers, but by and large, it does nothing about either the quantity or the quality of care in the market. I think we really need to tend to both the quantity and the quality, as well as the affordability, and you can't do that without public subsidies. We've learned that from Quebec. We've learned that from Europe. We're not doing well in the OECD in terms of how we invest as a nation in the learning potential of our youngest learners. Uh, we're well below average. To bring us up to just the average of the OECD, which includes some poorer countries, but ones that invest in the next generation, we'd have to bring the federal share of spending to 50%, let's say, and that would be about another $8 billion a year. And by the way, this target is around getting about 70% of our kids able to be served by spaces. Right now, it's well, before the pandemic, it was 27% of our kids that had access to licensed spaces. So really bad choice that was available for parents if that's what they were looking for. But the idea that we need more numbers of spaces and high quality spaces, and they need to be publicly funded, the provinces and municipalities and territories are broke. So this is the perfect time for the federal government to actually lift up its role in this. They, they spend, right now, the provinces and territories do all the heavy lifting. And the, some municipalities, the federal government is about a 12% partner. So if it was to be an equal partner, right now's the time where all the additional money should be coming from the federal government as we build a system. But what we've done thus far is simply, what we're doing is basically replicating this patchwork of for-profit, not-for-profit, licensed, unlicensed. It's just like a catch-as-you-can thing. There are no targets. There are no efforts to actually improve the learning potential for our youngest learners. And there's no real plan to make sure that those who can most benefit from additional space are the targets at the front end of this rollout. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The faster we roll it out to the people that can most benefit from it, the longer we will be reaping rewards, dividends, yields, 
from these investments. And they are investments in our future. I want to get to some of the challenges that critics put to a national role in childcare in the way that it's now being presented. We've been in the space through bilateral agreements, not with a huge amount of funding, but a significantly increased amount of funding since 2015, I would say. But for the first time in the throne speech, certainly, and then echoed in the fall economic statement, there's an emphasis on the Quebec model, but there's also an emphasis on this economic case for getting women back to work and, and getting back to some sense of normal, but also increasing labor force participation and the economic return that comes with it. I've read Jim Stanford's piece on the role of early learning and childcare and rebuilding Canada's economy. He highlights the work of Nobel Prize winning economist James Heckman, who's been influential in what he calls supporting sort of the consensus for high quality stimulation learning during the first six years of a child's life. But this notion of the economic case for a universal program, and we, we don't use the language of universal in the throne speech. We talk about affordability and accessibility. But when we hold out the Quebec model, it does invoke questions about universality. And when we get to James Heckman, that Nobel Prize winning economist, his most recent work that was put to me when I reached out to his team was from November 2016. And they note the economic case for universal early childhood programs is weak. So how do we, in making that economic argument, defend universality or are we defending universality? I think we're defending universality in the sense that we're trying to level the playing field so that everybody can be their best of them. That's the universality we're talking about, is maximizing learning potential of every child. And that will be a different uh, capacity for every child, but actually not putting roadblocks in the way is really important. That's the universal part of it. But the real big part of this is to lift up everybody by providing choice. There's no real choice in the market. It's a market-driven system. And the variability of quality, as well as accessibility, as well as affordability, is just guaranteed to put roadblocks in the idea of maximizing potential, not only of mommies and daddies that want to get back to work and think about young kids, but of the children themselves as they grow up. We've known for decades that the way we learn is hardwired in our early years. And so it isn't just babysitting that we're talking about. We're talking about helping kids learn how to learn in their early years and carry that through their lives. So that is very much like the most fundamental level playing field. So there's absolutely a kind of universal thrust to that, but it's not going to be everybody gets the same thing. And even a national program, you rightly pointed to the fact that the bilats, the bilateral agreements with the provinces and territories and First Nations, which only were signed in 2017, is a very uniquely Canadian and fiscal federalism way of doing things. But there's, there's so much variability right now on where we're starting from, province by province, that the bilateral agreements are going to be a patchwork of, of priorities based on where, where the province is starting from and how it's meeting the needs of its youngest generation of uh, citizens, as well as it, its youngest working age population that has got kids. So those are the voters and the government needs to prepare for what's gonna happen in 15 to 20 years when population aging is going to be really dragging the economy. And if we can't rely on our kids now, if we haven't invested in them now, we're gonna be blaming the people that were just like, I don't know, on autopilot back in the day. But that doesn't mean a universal or cookie cutter approach. Every agreement is different now. It fits in a multilateral framework that says we are going to be building out affordable 
affordable, accessible, high-quality licensed childcare. It is agnostic on for-profit or not-for-profit. There's a huge debate about that. Is like, can you actually care for profit? We've got some cautionary tales from the long-term care sector right now. And we've got provinces that are actively right now deregulating care, increasing class size for the youngest, for toddlers, and reducing qualifications for early childhood education. So actually rowing in the wrong direction. So we do have challenges and it is not going to look the same in every province. When we talk about a national strategy, it's aspirational to lift as many kids up as possible, but it isn't a uniform, universal approach, nor should it be because everybody's starting from a different place, including, by the way, Quebec. So you, you talked about, you know, the Quebec model, but the language of the fall economic statement was the lessons we can learn from the Quebec model, because they're not perfect either and they know it. In fact, their biggest issue there is in their rush to make things affordable and accessible, they turned a blind eye to quality. That's a really good place to pause and critically examine the Quebec system and what we might want to do differently as it relates to quality, because this was another when the Quebec model is, is held up as a standard or a path to pursue, per se. And maybe there's research that contradicts this. But again, this was held up. And this is a Canadian study of our Quebec system. But we have Baker, Gruber, and then Kevin Milligan from 2008, but also 2015. And they find negative effects in some cases for the outcome of kids. And, and you've written in your own work that the emphasis has to be on the results for kids and the outcomes for kids. Mm-hmm. And if that is the framework that we that we want to have in mind and, and, and the overall goal that we want to really focus on, then the Quebec model is in some ways a cautionary tale that we should learn from and improve upon. But what, what does that look like? What improvements need to be brought to bear? I've got a constituent who has put examples to me and some criticism to me, and she points to ratios. And it really is a question of ratios that, that, are, that are a challenge. So how do you see, if we're learning lessons from the Quebec model to improve quality, what, what does that look like? It's both ratios as well as the qualifications of the educators. And we see how that, that works in the public school system. And we see how that works in hospitals, and we see how that works in long-term care. So in the caring economy, we know that the relationship of the person providing the care to the person who needs the care is the secret sauce. How qualified are they and how much time do they have to provide the care? Those are the two things, right? We have in places like Atlantic Canada, we have in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. In New Brunswick, they're fleeing the field because the payment and benefits, the compensation of these workers is so poor that they can get better jobs elsewhere, even though they're trained to do this. And the province is turning to recruiting temporary foreign workers to stop these places. Nova Scotia turned around and decided, actually, we are going to treat these people as if they're early childhood educators, which is what we've trained them to do. And we're going to pay them commensurate to their training. And they had an influx of people from out of province that had been trained in Nova Scotia that had left to get work elsewhere. They don't have a labor shortage in Nova Scotia. Why? Because they compensate people properly, but they also are seeking people that are properly trained. So that's the that's the mix. And also having regulations saying you can't deal with 22-year-olds. You cannot have one adult dealing with 22-year-olds. I mean, you got two kids, you know what it's like. There's a limit to how much you can deal with really little kids. And, you know, we've got evidence. We've got research that shows what the optimality is. Your constituent is absolutely right. It's the staffing ratio, but it's also the quality of training 
and it isn't a one, you know, one time and you're done approach to training. We're always learning about how to do things better. And that needs to be like a professional development pathway for who is already providing the care and who we are going to recruit for this expansion that we need and supports like, you know, in the public school system, not all schools have it, but in the public school system, you have supports like kids with special needs. There are supports in schools that might not be enough, but there's no supports in the child care system. And kids that are three and four years old are already starting to display some issues with learning disorders or physical or mental disabilities that need to be addressed as early as possible. So we know how to build the system. It's not like we don't know how to do it. The quality is in ensuring that every child gets the services that they need in a timely way by trained professionals, the right person in the right place at the right time. Not easy to do, but it is possible to regulate it, to staff it, and to compensate it. And we have not done any of that. We have viewed childcare as a choice for parents. You want to have kids? Cool. That's your choice. You want to have kids in work? Cool. That's your choice. You want to have kids in work and you're going to need care? Well, it's your choice whether you want a nanny or person down the road or your parents, or maybe if you're lucky enough to get a licensed childcare center, but yeah, it's true. We don't have many of those. So it's not a real choice. It's time for us to make it a real choice for families. And it won't be one size fits all. Absolutely. It will not be, but we can improve the quality for more people and that will pay off in tons of ways. And Quebec is the model for that. You know, Quebec is the model for it literally pays for itself just in the form of higher labor force participation rates of women. And the evidence is incontrovertible there. But that isn't all we need, is more mommies working. We need to do better by our kids. Right. And that quality concern, you mentioned the special needs kids, and this is not an area of policy that I know a great deal about, but it was brought to my attention, even here in Ontario, the public school system, the full day kindergarten model, some have cast doubt on the way it is delivering for special needs kids. And in fact, a report even commissioned by the province of Ontario found that special needs kids did particularly poorly in full day kindergarten. And so this question of quality, I think, I appreciate the economic arguments, but that question of quality for kids and outcome for kids, I think ought to be one of the primary drivers for the conversation. And and the other driver for the conversation, we talk about choice. And I don't want to sound like a conservative because conservatives have fought in some cases against more childcare funding on the basis of that language of choice. But I do think we can use the language of choice to hold up supporting parents' choices and particularly women's choices. I wonder when we look at the goal of 70% of kids in childcare, more formal, full-time childcare spaces, is that really what the goal should be? Or should the goal instead be high quality care, whatever the parents choose to decide for themselves. That if a parent wants to stay home more, wants to make the choice to forego some time in the workforce to be with their kid, or or like my wife, the exact opposite, wants to say, I want to get back to work in a faster way. Wh- whichever decision the parent makes, we support them in that choice. Shouldn't that be the goal? It should be. It absolutely should be. So when we say 70% of kids that age, their parents should have access to a regulated high quality space that's affordable. It's not that we're saying 70% of kids should be in that space. They're being taken care of already. There's been a social revolution in how we 
raise our kids from the 1970s to now, we've gone from about a third of women with young children working to two thirds, like flipping the relationship on its head with zero policy response. And families have been scrambling to find childcare that does not exist, but they're using childcare because these women are working. So all we're saying is that the, the, the spaces that these kids are in, whether they're down the street or you know at your local Y or wherever it is, make sure they're regulated, high quality care that's affordable. So these kids are already in the market being taken care of somebody else, right? Saying that we want 70% of kids getting access to regulated, high quality, licensed care that is affordable is not moving more kids into the system. They're there, just we have to increase the quality of the care that's there, that's the true choice point. Because there's too many young families like yours that can't afford to live without two people working. So who's taking care of the kids, right? Somebody's got to be taking care of the kids. And I, I do think uh, childcare becomes a bit of a unique space in some ways, because when we talk about quality, and I say this in an anecdotal as a, as a parent kind of way, that I can tell that the quality of care my son, my four-year-old gets from my mom is better for him. And I can tell that the same is true when there is that that trust and that connection and that love. And so if it is a, a neighbor with a home care setting that doesn't maybe have that, those same credentials, but has that connection, how do we assess quality in that context? And how do we, do we worry about displacing existing Childcare that is maybe more local and has that connection? That will always exist. Nobody's saying drive them out. It's not a witch hunt, right? It should be parents' choices, but parents don't have many choices right now, right? Right. So it's going to be the parents' choice what kind of care they want. It would be great if by creating a cultural appetite for high-quality care, you provided pathways for those caregivers around the corner to actually upgrade their training and get paid commensurately, right? So yeah, they're still at home, but they can show I got training in X, Y, and Z. And with every additional thing that you've done to upgrade your, your training, you get some kind of subsidy or acknowledgement that you deserve to be paid commensurately for the training that you've done. Similarly, you know, we've been saying for 50 years now, it's a shame that we pay our childcare workers less than we pay our zookeepers. People are getting trained and getting paid the minimum wage. That, like, of course, you're not going to get people that are totally invested. Of course, you're going to get churn. Somebody was telling me just this week that the rate of churn in some child care centers in downtown Toronto is 60%. You're going to get people that are treated like garbage. Look, the working conditions of the workers are the learning conditions for the children. They're the care conditions. It's the same for long-term care workers. The working conditions are the care conditions. If you treat your workers like crap, what kind of level of service do you think you're gonna get? So there's going to be always this range of care that parents are looking for. And nobody's saying, no, we shouldn't have that variety. Yes, we should have that variety, but we should have additional choice through high quality regulated systems that are designed to actually lift up the value of the people doing the work because they are the ones delivering the care. When we talk about publicly managed systems, I have a bias. I'm a product of the public school system and my parents were both public school teachers. My experience though with constituents who operate private daycare providers is there's a difference in quality that I can see 
when they are local, they are smaller operators in their community. They own the business, but they live in the community and they serve the community. They know the parents, they're part of the community versus a very corporate model where those who run the daycare are completely divorced from the community. Do you have a sense when we talk about publicly managed childcare and in your writing, you emphasize publicly managed childcare, maintaining space for those private operators? Yeah, I don't think we can afford to lose them. Like we're already losing too much capacity, but I think you can regulate higher quality. You're never going to lose these big box caregivers. They just run a, an efficient business model. And can I just say, you can find examples of malfeasance and inferior quality of care in a house down the road right? and a great example of care in a big box. Right. So like ruling out a version of care, I, I think is like a mug game. You're you're never gonna solve that part of it. You need to just be mission oriented, right? You've got all this money that the federal government can put into it. We need physical plant, we need workforce development, we need to treat that workforce better, compensate them better, make sure they have pensions. And back to your point about you know kids that are in kindergarten that are doing poorly because they have special needs. In the mid-1990s, we had a provincial government in Ontario with a minister of education called John Snowballin. I, I, I remember holding signs at, at pickets. <laughs> uh, my kids were in school at the time in 1995 when he said, if you want to reform education, you need to create a crisis. And he pulled out over a billion dollars in public funding in the middle of the 1990s changed completely the funding formula. We're still living with that funding formula, which underfunds each child and under supports the space that they're in. So we have fewer supports for our children now than we did 25 years ago. And we're wondering why our kids are doing poorly. They don't have the supports they used to have. We need those supports brought back that costs money. So, uh, you know, if, so long as you've got a government whose number one priority is balancing the books, you're not going to get the supports you need. I was in high school and I remember attending protests, holding a sign saying, Snowballin, finish your own education before you finish ours. <laughs> but on the question of diversity of childcare options, one incredibly important option remains the family option of parents looking after their right. own kids. Childcare is a, is a real squeeze and a real crunch for young Canadians. And I hear from constituents who have two kids under the age of, of four, and in some cases, three kids, if they if, if potentially there one situation where there was twins, and it is unaffordable. I mean, they, a parent, they may not want to, but they have to take then time off because it's just so unaffordable to send all of their kids to, to childcare. At the same time, is the Canada Child Benefit sufficient right now to, to then say we are able to support both parents who want to send their kids to childcare because they want to get back to work, but we're also there with enough financial support to support the parents who don't want to go back to maybe a more menial job that they're, or, or whatever, any job that they don't want to go back to because they want to stay home with their kids as their choice. Do you think we're getting the right balance as far as it goes if we lean in with $8 billion for childcare funding and we maintain supports for the Canada Child Benefit, or do you see you mentioned $2.4 in increased support through the fall economic statement. Are, are we landing that balance right, or, or is there a balance to be struck there? The Canada Child Benefit was greatly enhanced when this administration first came into place. It was jaw-dropping. It was your first budget. 
And I remember everybody in the child poverty community didn't know exactly how to deal with it in the lockup because it was more than anybody had asked for. It was just like, what, are those, what do you say? It's very generous and it continues to increase. So, And we are pouring more money into it, as I mentioned in the fall economic statement. At some point, you have to ask yourself, have we done enough on the you stay at home, honey, and the taxpayer will pay you? My answer to that would be, not only have we done enough for now, on the income side of it, because there are other ways of supplementing incomes, but we haven't done enough on the service side of it. So we've been very good on the tax credit and the tax and the income transfer side of it. That's all we've done for about 25 years. You know, in the mid 1990s, my marriage broke up and I was a sole support parent with three kids requiring childcare. And I got audited three times because childcare ate up almost all of my income. And they were looking at it and saying, how can you do this? It's like I couldn't afford to quit because there was no other sorts of income coming in. So it has been like this for 30 or 40 years. And politically speaking, I have been told for 30 or 40 years, this is a political loss leader for any government that wants to introduce childcare because the only people that really care about it, the only votes there are the families that have got preschoolers. And as soon as your kid's in, in kindergarten, it's like, poof, don't have to worry about that anymore. That is completely bonkers. As a feminist government, you need to stop thinking that way and look to the future Look to the amount of stress so many families are under because it is such a big bite of the income. Look to the lessons from Quebec where you're seeing people more able to make that choice. Do they want to go to work and do paid work or do they want to work at home and raise their kids? Or what's the balance? That's up to people if they've got choices. Women don't have choices across the country right now. So if you're a feminist government, you should be all about increasing the choice and also increasing the choice of parents that are staying at home to have supports like drop-in centers where they can learn how to be better parents too. Nobody falls off the turnip truck knowing what the heck they're doing when it comes to raising a child. Everybody needs help. We need help from one another. So more supports in libraries and community centers for drop-in programs where you can not be isolated at home, where you can learn from one another and maybe pick up some tricks on great parenting. These are the type of supports we should be giving. I think we avoid a lot of problems when we support our young families properly. And supporting them requires giving them not only choice, but quality of choice. My last question, and to pick off of what you just said about supporting young families, not all young families are equal. The bite out of income is not equal for all of us. I have been privileged in my life, and my wife and I are privileged to be able to pay the $20,000 absurd sum for childcare here in Toronto. My family in Michigan, small town Michigan, their jaw drops when we tell them the cost here in Toronto, but we are able to make it work. Not everyone is able to make it work. There are many more people who can't make it work. And yet when we look at the Quebec experience, again, to get back, I guess, to that question of are the dollars flowing in some way universally? Because the evidence that I saw, or some of the evidence at least, suggested that the policy out of Quebec caused a sizable increase in maternal labor supply, as you've indicated. 
But the evidence also notes, from what I can read, that the effect mainly was experienced by high-income families for which the program dramatically changed the cost of childcare. Is that the policy result we should be aiming for, or should we really be focused on the people who can't afford childcare today, who are struggling through that crunch in a really intense way, and to say, we're helping you because you are the one in need of this support? So there is a, you've tapped on something really that causes a lot of people to twitch. We know that the biggest returns on investment are for the people that are least likely to change their behavior by going to work if they have access to childcare. And that those kids that get really high quality, you know, the Head Start program from the 1970s in the United States, we've got 40 years of evidence showing that for every dollar put into these programs, you got between four and eight dollars back in lifetime responses to the public purse, right? So less need for unemployment benefits, less need for healthcare services, for incarceration, for policing services, a whole range of stuff. We've got the data. So we know it pays off for the poorest kids who are least likely to enter school. Right. Uh, There's a very strong economic case for targeted approach for disadvantaged families. So going to your point about why when Quebec rolled out fast, the first families in front of the queue were the ones that didn't need as much help. And the ones that needed more help, they got the money. They got the cheap care. But the cheap care was, yeah, the lady down the street, which was an optimal quality of care. The problem with uh, Canada is there's a lot of literature in Quebec in French where they acknowledge the quality issues and how they, they, they know they have to deal with them. And they are in the process of doing that right now. And that's why I think the federal dollars that are coming through, hopefully, based on the uh, full economic statement, will continue to have us ha- learn lessons from Quebec because Quebec also has skin in the game here. They want to improve quality. Improving quality is an expensive proposition. So they too can, even though they're indisputably the leader of the pack in Canada, they took women's labor force participation rates in Quebec from below average to above average in 15 years because of this policy. And they continue to be above average in Canada because of this one policy. So it literally pays for itself still, but to improve quality for the next generation of workers. That's going to cost a lot of money. And that's where the feds come in. And we can learn from how they are doing it. They have these um, basically early childhood education centers that are the gold standard in Canada. They just don't have enough of them. And so we can learn from what works in those centers and how do we replicate that model or learn from the model and see what pieces that we can take out to improve the quality. But cut to the chase. The quality of care is a function of who is trained to provide the care, how many people they need to look after, and how they themselves are valued in the compensation benefits that they get. And then also the the, the range of supports that are around those kids. You can have the best care in the world, but if a child is disabled or is having real trouble with some things and they can't get access to care, the quality of the care is crap. We just need to have the whole system in place. We know how to do it. It costs money, but apparently we have money now. So let's actually design the system to work for our children as well as our young parents so that the entire economy can benefit. 
Well, I, I very much appreciate your time, and I'm glad to see the government looking to invest more as a matter of generational fairness, as I say. And, and here in our community, we see high costs of childcare to say we need to make childcare more affordable. I, I do think we have to better answer that question, and, and you've provided some answers with me today, but just the government coming forward with clear answers of how are we learning from the Quebec system? How are we going to improve on quality of care? What does that specifically look like? Hopefully we see this in the budget, but I, I do really, I do really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Nate. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Thanks, of course, to Armin for her time. We ended up chatting for an extended period of time beyond the posted conversations, so I might recycle some of that content, especially as it relates to our conversation around basic income, which I found really interesting. We'll see what comes in Budget 2021 as it relates to childcare and, and early learning. If you have any questions on this, please don't hesitate to reach out. If there are guests you'd like me to invite or topics you'd like me to take on in future episodes, do let me know that as well. Otherwise, please subscribe, leave a positive review if you can on your platform of choice. And otherwise, until next time.